Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you hear well done from the lips of the master after running the race he has marked out for you. Some years ago, I found myself praying about whether I should pursue a D-Min degree and write my dissertation on men's ministry. But a rather sobering thought struck me. If my kids are in my home roughly 20 years, and I live to be 70, they are only going to be with me two-sevenths of my life. The price of pursuing the degree at this time will be paid by my five kids, who will get less time with me. I decided to put it off until four of my five kids were in college. The years of greatest influence in our kids' lives go by in a flash. So dads whose kids are still at home need to know how to maximize our influence before they are launched into a world full of destructive worldviews. But it's not only dads with kids at home who care about their influence. Even if our kids are launched or have gifted us with grandkids, we also want to know how to maximize whatever influence we can have with both our adult kids and grandchildren. This episode examines God's two-part design of the influence we wield as spiritual leaders of our homes, positional influence and relational influence. In both cases, we must overcome false worldviews that deny the way God wants us to lead our homes. For joining us today for Season 5, Episode Number 3 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. This is the third episode in our January series, Leading Our Homes Well in a Culture That Doesn't Want Us to Lead. Last week, we answered the first leadership question, Where Am I Taking My Family?, noting the biblical answer to spiritual maturity as Christ's disciples. Like Paul, leaders of their homes say, One thing I do— Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers, join in imitating me. Today's episode examines the second leadership question, which has to do with my relationship with my followers. How do I use my leadership influence to motivate them to come with me? The biblical answer to this question once again requires us to overcome strong cultural headwinds, that is, worldviews promoted in the culture which undermine a man's leadership calling. We identify four in this episode. False worldview number one, men are unnecessary. This view is rooted in feminism, egalitarianism, and the LGBTQ plus movement. A lesbian couple can parent as well as a heterosexual married couple. Men bring nothing unique to the process of raising children. Egalitarian-leaning church-going men know their wives have more intuitive insight about kids than they do. When the kids ask to do something, their response is, go ask your mom. Such men don't wear the pants of the family. The biblical view is that fatherhood is irreplaceable. Creation itself tells us that the nuclear family is not just a social construct. The biological fact that conception takes place in the context of husband and wife making love speaks volumes about the best environment for nurturing that child to healthy adulthood. 
In God's obvious creation design for a child to thrive, he or she needs a family built on mom and dad's love for one another. The Family Codes section of Ephesians and Colossians are significant. They address wives, then husbands, then children, commanding them to obey their parents. So we would expect the next group Paul addresses to be parents, but it is not. Well, how about mothers? No. It is striking that when Paul addresses the training of the children, he doesn't mention mothers, but gives commands to fathers. This pattern of responsibility began with Abraham, the father of the Christian faith. God said of Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Perhaps fathers are specifically addressed because we inherited Adam's passivity. Adam should have protected Eve from Satan and reinforced the truth of what God had said. Substantial research confirms that fathers and mothers discipline their children differently. Focus on the Family, for example, writes, Dad takes an objective approach and provides his children with much-needed instruction in the area of moral absolutes and the consequences of right and wrong actions. Mom, on the other hand, emphasizes compassion, empathy, relationship, and the importance of appreciating the uniqueness of each individual. In other words, both mom and dad are needed. False worldview number two teaches a parent-centered approach to children's discipline. In our narcissistic culture, it should not surprise us that some approaches to discipline are more about the parent's feelings than the child's behavior. It is reactive discipline. Here is an example. A dad on the playground says to his son, stop playing on the monkey bars. But his son knows that this command means nothing. His father will not act until he has told the boy four or five times to stay off the monkey bars. So the son continues to ignore his father's command. The father, who is busy talking, yells at him again. But the son knows that his dad is not steamed up enough to act. Finally, the father reaches his limit and explodes. You've got me really angry with you now. Get into that car. Instead of clarifying his instruction once and then giving painful consequences for disobedience, this parenting approach is based upon the exasperation of the parent. Kids live up to whatever is demanded of them. The dad didn't want to be bothered with the responsibility of being a good parent, but instead to continue his conversation. Furthermore, when my parenting is based upon how patient I feel or how irritated or angry I get, punishment becomes random and inconsistent, which provokes hot anger in a child. One moment he gets away with murder. The next moment he barely steps across the line and is slammed with punishment. The dad trained his son not to obey until he, the dad, started to get angry. He also made the issue his anger instead of the son's disobedience. Good parenting isn't rooted in how a parent feels, but how a child behaves. In fact, good parenting makes sure that the child understands that painful consequences for his misbehavior are not personal and do not interfere with the parent's love and relationship with him. In contrast is the biblical view. Disciplining children is part of a training plan for the child. 
Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 Here are four wrong approaches to discipline that do provoke anger. First, inconsistent discipline, as we've seen. Consistent discipline trains a child to know what the boundaries are because the parents have thought them through ahead of time. It is not a seat-of-the-pants reactive discipline. Second, discipline that attacks a child's character using the words you always or you never instead of correcting behavior also provokes anger. Third, disciplining a child in public will wound his spirit. Fourth, discipline that is more frequent than praise wounds our child, also provoking anger. Studies show that parents use critical words 10 times more than they use words to praise their children. Mostly correction, with little or no affirmation, crushes kids' spirits and can lead to a rebellious, wounded spirit. In context, as Ephesians 6.4 continues, Paul implies that the alternative to provoking anger in our children is to exercise discipline in connection with the rest of the training plan for the child. Paul continues in verse 4 to describe that plan. First, bring them up. Dads are not to watch their child grow up being passive, but to actively raise them with intentionality. Number two, in the discipline. This Greek word is paideia, from which we get pediatric. It means using consequences to train children. A father's punishing authority is never to be used selfishly or reflexively, but as part of a thought-through training plan. Paul continues, thirdly, and the instruction of the Lord. Instruction means literally to put into the mind. This requires a plan for what biblical truths, godly qualities, and characteristics of Jesus we are trying to impart to our kids. False worldview number three. Punishment stifles children and makes them feel bad about themselves, so we should avoid it. This humanistic view of human nature is that giving consequences for bad behavior is unnecessary, harmful, and maybe even oppressive, labeling paddling or spanking abuse. Critical theory advocates see prison inmates as victims and the police as oppressors. The concept of spanking a child is horrifying. This refusal to bring painful consequences to correct wrong behavior in children is so harmful that the Bible calls it hatred. I want to say that again. The Bible calls a refusal to use painful consequences to correct behavior hatred. Proverbs 13:24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The reason this false worldview promotes hatred for our children is given in Proverbs 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That folly will destroy him. But, says this verse, the rod of discipline drives the folly far from him. The biblical worldview is whom a father loves, he disciplines. In Hebrews 12, God points to the universally recognized role of fathers in his creation. They discipline their children to help the Hebrew believers cope with their suffering. 
This glimpse of God's view of a father's responsibility is full of wisdom for us. Verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Although the author of Hebrews appeals to the common cultural understanding of his day that all fathers discipline their children, Western egalitarian humanism wasn't on his mind. We are often told that loving a child means accepting his wrong behavior instead of correcting it. And even the moderating views of others are mistaken when they say a child needs both love and discipline. But discipline is not something that balances love. It is love put into action. It is cruel to allow a child to become the victim of his unrestrained sinful nature. Some parents see firm discipline as negative because they experience the out-of-control abuse of men using force to coerce behavior. But they need to distinguish between this corruption of God's design of fatherly discipline and the firm discipline that God calls love in action. The biblical view that love requires parents to train their child through giving painful consequences for wrong behavior is rooted in the biblical worldview of human nature. Unlike the humanist who thinks we just need to let a child grow in every direction he wants to, all he needs is affirmation, Christians know better. Just as growing excellent grapes to make rich wine to the glory of the vineyard owner requires pruning, Christian parents know that growing excellent kids means pruning wrong behavior through painful consequences. In case we weren't shocked enough by God saying that the refusal to punish our child is hatred, he also equates the failure to discipline a child to killing him. Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Painful consequences for bad behavior and rewards for good behavior are required because of the child's sinful nature called folly. Let's consider five aspects of the folly of every child's heart. Number one, he is out of control and unable to say no to himself. If uncorrected, this will lead to the tragedy of going through life unable to resist his destructive impulses. Left alone, he will never learn to delay gratification so he can accomplish his tasks and fulfill his responsibilities. In contrast, painful consequences for inappropriate behavior train a child to resist what he is feeling in order to fulfill his responsibilities. Self-control is a golden virtue and will benefit a child his entire life. The second aspect of folly, he is trying to control everyone around him to get his way. Cloud and Townsend in their book Boundaries with Kids write, An accurate description of children is that they are little people who are out of control themselves and attempting to control everyone around them. The irony is that when parents give in to a child instead of requiring obedience, it creates insecurity in a child. 
When a child pushes against the boundaries and they are firm, his world is safe and secure. But if they give way, the child must control everything and the child's need to be in control to feel secure will bring massive problems into his life. The third characteristic of folly. A child does not want to conform to reality, but wants reality to conform to him. Parenting requires us to prepare a child for the real world, where the law of sowing and reaping functions. If I work hard, I can advance in my career. If I walk on the treadmill, I will strengthen my heart muscle. Our discipline plan must have reality consequences. Choose to do your chores, you play. Choose to avoid your chores, you pay. Don't ride your bike past the corner or you will lose it for the week. Positive consequences are important too. Since you've been obeying the rule to only ride to the corner, I think you are ready to ride down to Billy's house. The fourth characteristic of folly is that a child blames circumstances and others instead of taking responsibility for his actions. Parents who raise healthy kids teach them to take responsibility for their own feelings, attitudes, behaviors, and choices. Blaming others isn't permitted. The folly that parents fail to drive out leads to an entitlement mentality and the misery that goes with a life of anger and envy toward those more fortunate than they. The fifth characteristic of folly is that a child is so self-absorbed by nature that he won't succeed at love. Love requires a person to know how his behavior affects others. For example, allowing a child to yell at us is cruel. Many in our culture would say he needs to vent. Don't stifle his feelings. But his relationships in life will end in disaster if he is not taught to overcome his feelings and treat others with respect. Discipline's purpose is to impose short-run, safe pain in order to avoid long-run, destructive pain. Listen to these insightful words. Proverbs 29.1 A person often rebuked who becomes obstinate will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Teaching a child to obey teaches him mastery over his impulses. Such mastery is an invaluable attribute that will cause a child to thrive his entire life. On one occasion, I saw a friend's five-year-old racing across a parking lot heading into a lane of traffic that he was not tall enough to see. But his father did see the fast-approaching car and yelled, Billy, stop! His son immediately obeyed and the car zoomed by. George had worked for many frustrating days to train Billy to instantly obey his voice. Kids live up to the standard of obedience we demand from them. In this case, firm training may have saved Billy's life. Paddling a toddler who runs into the street prevents future harm. So the third false worldview is that inflicting the pain of correction is unloving, when in fact the exact opposite is the case. The fourth false worldview is that patriarchal authority is oppressive. 
The biblical teaching of male leadership results from the male privilege that the writers of the Bible experienced, according to this view. However, that fallen men would abuse their leadership was no surprise to the biblical authors. In fact, the Bible shows the consequences of using a leadership position selfishly on the part of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. When Rehoboam perceived a threat to his throne by the request of his people to lighten their taxes, he got counsel from two different sources. One group counseled Rehoboam to show the power of his authority. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. But the second group understood that true leadership always involves more than positional influence, but relational influence as well. They wisely counseled, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. The second group giving Rehoboam advice understood the biblical concept of leadership far better. Leadership is influence, sometimes positional, but always relational. Rehoboam failed to understand that leadership is influence, not position. He chose option one, and ten of the twelve tribes of Israel rebelled against his rule. In sharp contrast is the biblical worldview that the call to biblical leadership is the call to serve our followers. Accepting our positional authority and using it to firmly discipline our children is crucial for effective influence upon our children. Parenthetically, we don't need to fear that wielding such authority will harm our relationship with our kids. Scripture assures us we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Firm discipline in the long run wins our kids' respect. They will not respect a dad who just wants to be their play buddy. On the other hand, to maximize our influence, there is no substitute for winning the hearts of our followers by caring for them well. Here are just five ways that Jesus built his relationship with his followers to think about before we close. First, through understanding. By taking on human flesh, God the Son came into our world. He sweat real sweat. Hitting his fingers with the hammer hurt him just as much as it hurts us. He is now our great high priest, full of empathy. Through affirmation, Peter had denied him three times. Then Jesus went out of his way to present Peter with a chance to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times and reinstated him to his call. Through companionship, in Mark 3.14, Jesus reveals to us another vital key to leadership influence. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. No relationship can be built without investing in time together. Fourth, through compassion. The 12 continually saw Jesus' heart in action. When a leper came to Jesus saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean, Mark says that the apostles saw that Jesus' heart was filled with compassion. The fifth avenue to winning the hearts of his followers, exercised by Jesus, was attentiveness to their practical needs. The best way to win another's heart is to unselfishly focus on serving him or her. 
meeting their practical needs, which Jesus demonstrated constantly in his healing ministry and in feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. The best way to influence our wife and kids to follow us is to win their hearts by loving them well, building a caring relationship with them. Leading our homes is not just being the decision maker. It is intentionally using our authority and relational influence to sculpt a child's character. Cloud and Townsend write, You are preparing your child for his future. A person's character is his destiny. Child rearing is primarily about helping children to develop character that will take them through life safely, securely, productively, and joyfully. To summarize this episode, we continued our January series, Leading Our Homes Well in a Culture That Doesn't Want Us to Lead, by examining the biblical view of how a leader uses his influence with his followers. We noted the importance of both positional influence and relational influence. We noted four cultural falsehoods that a man has to overcome to follow God's design of using his fatherly authority. Number one, although many today try to argue that men are unnecessary, scripture and research prove the opposite. Fatherhood is irreplaceable. Number two, although many in today's narcissistic culture base their parental discipline on how frustrated they get with their child, accusing their child of making them angry, biblical discipline is not about how parents feel, but about how kids behave. Correction is to be a dispassionate, controlled means of teaching character by giving consequences. Pain for bad behavior rewards for good behavior. The third cultural falsehood comes from humanism, whose view of human nature is that correction stifles a child, wounding his self-esteem. In contrast, the biblical teaching is that allowing a child to go his own way Becoming a victim of his sinful nature is cruel, hateful, and deadly. We zoomed in to take a look at the folly of a child's heart, that sinful nature, which we could see is, number one, refusing to control himself to live up to mom and dad's standards, but second, wanting them to change the standards. Third, not wanting to conform to reality. Fourth, blaming circumstances and others for his behavior. And fifth, being too self-absorbed to be able to love, which requires knowing how his behavior affects others. The fourth false worldview that we examined was that male leadership in the home is inherently oppressive, when in fact, Scripture universally teaches that such a leadership position is given for the purpose of serving others. For further prayerful thought, number one, how would you argue with a Christian brother who said, my wife is better with the kids, so I leave their discipline to her? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we continue our series, Leading Our Homes Well in a Culture That Doesn't Want Us To, by examining how we can assist and equip our children to be prepared to leave home and impact the world as a Jesus follower. Additional support for this podcast comes from World News Group, 
sound journalism grounded in facts and biblical truth. More at WNG.org. Thanks for joining us for today's episode.